chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that he, if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple there named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask him for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Well, good morning. My name is Jack and I'm part of the staff team here at Christchurch. Today we're going to continue our series looking through the book of Acts and I'll be helping us to look at that next section together. But before I do that, let's pray. Father, I ask that this morning would be a Damascus Road experience for us listening. Those people who are on a road to a place they shouldn't be, to do something they shouldn't do, would meet with you this morning. That those that already know you would be reminded of your goodness and your brilliance again. Lord, come have your way through me this morning as I speak your word. Amen. Kevin Jones, Carl Barnes and Adam Jenkins. That's my list. That's my three people who I think are the least likely to ever put their trust in Jesus. Kevin, he is a number three. Um, he is, uh, was my boss in my old company. He's the director at the age of 37, very ambitious. He's here pictured uh, looking like Bill Gates. Um, he had more money than you know just what to do with. And in five years of working with him, I never once had a conversation with him about Jesus. He never once took me up on any of the little bites that I gave him or the conversations that we're having in the office. 
And number two, there's Carl. Um, Carl is, again, a work colleague, really lovely guy, um, a scientist, and he, he scoffs at the very idea of God. He had a few conversations with me over the time, but in, again, the years working with him, it was like speaking to a wall whenever God came up. But at number one, by a country mile, Adam Jenkins. Adam Jenkins is my equivalent of Draco Malfoy, if you follow Hogwarts, or Harry Potter rather. Or he, um, from day one of high school, we just didn't get on. We didn't like each other. No particular reason, we just didn't. We would make the most of um, pushing each other in school, of belittling each other when we had a chance, of inflaming any and every rumour that we could possibly do with each other. I became a Christian midway through high school, and I didn't once have a conversation with him about Jesus. He was rude, he was proudful, he was arrogant, and in hindsight, his head was only slightly smaller than my own. These are the three people, though, that I would put money on not coming to Jesus. God can do anything, we know that, but if I was going to put money on it, I'd happily bet your mortgage right now that those three won't come to faith. I wonder who your three are. Who comes to mind when you're asked that question? Who's the least likely person you know to put their trust in Jesus? A callous boss? Disgruntled neighbour? Maybe someone much closer to home? Maybe someone you dearly, dearly love? Well, as we go through this passage this morning, I would love you to keep one of those people in mind. Because that is exactly what chapter 9 of Acts is going to help us to be doing this morning. It's going to take those names that we've thought through and it's going to help us have a very different perspective on them. So let's jump in to our first point this morning, which is Jesus can save anyone. This is our third time of meeting Saul in this passage. We've seen him in chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. And in chapter 8, if you flick back a page in your Bible, in verse 3, you have Saul ravaging the church. This is meant to give us this image of a bear or a lion literally clawing away. Saul isn't trying to bruise the church. No, he's trying to destroy it. By the time we get to our passage today, we read that he is breathing threats and murder against God's people. Literally, his whole demeanour is that of an animal, as if the very breath that he was breathing was the air of persecution. He has made himself the self-appointed inquisitor and he's taken upon himself to get extradition papers from the high priest. He's near single-handedly forced the Christians in Jerusalem to scatter and now he's set his sight on further afield. I cannot stress how much Saul hates the followers of the way. The way was just a name for early Christians with Jesus being the way. See, he wants to destroy the church. He wants to bring back all who call on Jesus' name. Not just the leaders, but men and women. He plans to go around all the synagogues in Damascus. He plans to bind them up and drag back every believer he can find, leaving behind desolation. The church in tatters, the few remaining believers left with all their other brothers and sisters, orphaned children. Can you imagine the destruction of this? 
If you were dragged off your sofa or wherever you're watching this right now, what would you leave behind? Children? Pets? Something still cooking in the oven? Can you imagine the complete demolition this is going to have to the church? Saul hates the church. He is a horrible and wicked man. He is the equivalent today of the modern day leader of ISIS. When he arrives in town, all the Christians understandably get twitchy. And why? Why is Saul such a hater of the church? Well, I suspect it's because he's grasped, he's grasped the implications of the gospel far more than many of us do. See, Christianity, with its message of salvation by faith, apart from meritorious works, would turn all Saul's religious achievements into a pile of rubbish and be the end of all his boasts. See, Christianity was a threat to Saul's own religion, and it was now spreading amongst the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and he attacked it with all the zeal he possessed. So we find ourselves 150 miles away from Jerusalem on the road to Damascus. It's about a week's walk. Mighty Saul is on his way to Damascus when Jesus turns up. And what happens? There's a giant flash. Saul falls to the ground and he hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's reply, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Mic drop. That's, that's it. This huge, powerful, scary man that was coming to attack the church is now impotent. Jesus is so big and so powerful, his words alone land this knockout punch. Saul is instantly disarmed and out for the count. Let's just do a replay, make sure we haven't missed anything here. There was no preparatory work. See, Saul wasn't guilt-ridden before his conversion. In Galatians 1, we read that he says he was just zealous for the traditions of his fathers. In, Acts, in Galatians 1, he simply, sorry, in Galatians 1, he says he's zealous for the traditions of his father. In Acts 23, he says that he'd lived in good conscience up until that day. This conversion was instant. Jesus uses 31 words. I use more words when ordering a cup of coffee. Total, powerful transformation. So don't despair. That means that we should not be hopeless for those who show absolutely zero signs of being prepared for conversion. It's a mistake to think that if our prayers are only effective if they have some sort of instant response or some kind of openness or interest or spiritual sensitivity. Saul wasn't open, he wasn't interested, and he certainly wasn't spiritually sensitive. No, he was utterly closed, utterly convinced that Christianity was untrue. He was spiritually dead in the trespasses of his sins, like he says in Ephesians 2. He was not ripe for the picking, as we like to say. He was beyond picking. He was hard, he was dry, he was shriveled up. What happened to Saul was sudden and completely unexpected. And that means the same can happen for others. Saul's conversion 
was a complete work of divine sovereign grace. Jesus totally took over on the road to Damascus. He wasn't responding to anything that Saul had done. It was utterly sovereign. And that means completely free and unmerited. Conversion is a work of sovereign grace where God moves in our lives and surprises us with joy. So who is your Adam Jenkins? Who have you given up praying for? Which disgruntled neighbour, stubborn but loved family member? See where to keep on speaking the truth to them, keep on praying for them. Saul, the enemy of Christianity, was saved in a mere moment. The forgiveness he receives took thousands of years in the making. See, it was God's plan from the beginning to rescue us, culminating in Jesus giving his life upon a cross. That mercy, that forgiveness, is for you this morning. Regardless of the skeletons you have in your closet, Saul has got many skeletons in his closet and they are laid bare for us this morning. He deserved judgment just like you and just like me. But that same grace that rescues Saul, that amazing love, is the same grace that's for you and me today. This is a God who is for us. So if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, hear his invite for you today. Not many people are going to have this dramatic Damascus Road experience. But we don't need to. See, Jesus' invitation into a relationship with him is on offer for you today, just as much as it was for Saul back then. Or, if you have already accepted Jesus, then rejoice. Rejoice in what he's done for you, that he has come and rescued you. We haven't gone to him, he has come to us. Don't let the enormity of that gospel message become bland or forgotten about. Which moves us on to our second point this morning. Jesus is unstoppable. See, if Jesus can make Saul going from being this ferocious lion mauling the church to a lead sheep in the blink of an eye, then who or what can stop Jesus? We're supposed to see in this passage that Jesus is happy to disrupt any and every human plan that gets in the way of his gospel. He simply won't tolerate it. Jesus is unstoppable. Notice how Jesus doesn't ask Saul any questions after the initial, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He simply tells him what to do. He doesn't give Saul a choice here. He has chosen Saul to be his mouthpiece and he will have him. When Jesus comes, Saul is left on the floor, blinded and completely impotent. The power, this powerful man that had the Christians cowering now needs to be led by the hand like a child to the city. He is no longer a conquering lion, but a bleating sheep. And even the Christians, Ananias' totally understandable objections are dismissed. Ananias, in verse 13 and 14, he'd heard many reports. 
His friends, his brothers had suffered under Saul. It was publicly known that Saul was on his way to Damascus and when he left, he would take a prison train of prisoners with him. So when Ananias points out that him going to Saul is the equivalent of him handing himself over to an unjust police chief, at best to be arrested, at worst to be killed, we see Jesus' response. What is it? Go. See, what Ananias hadn't grasped here is that Jesus had gone ahead of him. Saul had already encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. We assume that just because obvious answers aren't there jumping up and down to us, that they don't happen. When in fact, the very opposite is true. Jesus is at work. So who are the powerful people in your life that you've ruled God unlikely or unable to reach? Who have you bet someone else's mortgage that that person, then they won't ever be saved? Who are the people in your life who hold power over you that you've never asked God to intervene? Or perhaps people who you love dearly, who you've prayed for years for, and you've given up on thinking that they will ever become Christians? Husband, brother, friends. Some of you may feel like you have to face a Saul every day of your life. Well, hear from God's word this morning. God is not motionless. He is at work in their lives. No one is more powerful than Jesus, not even the Saul you face. So keep persevering, keep praying. Jesus is with you. Luke wants to end this chapter by showing us that Jesus is unstoppable. He saved Simon the pagan magician and the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8. And now in chapter 9, he's saving the most powerful human enemy the church had. See, Jesus is going to get his gospel out there with or without our help. And Luke wants us to see this isn't a simply a call for us to go out and do more evangelism, but to join in where God is at work. To not limit who and where God can transform people's lives. When you think of your list of people unlikely to be saved, hear from God's word this morning that he can save anyone, that he is unstoppable, and there is no one ruled out by God, so we shouldn't rule anybody out either. And that brings us on to our third and final point this morning. Jesus' unstoppable plan involves people. We've seen that Jesus is, can save anyone. We've seen that he's unstoppable, and he will save anyone he chooses. It's his plan and he's busy at work. But he means for us to be involved. And in today's passage, we see two different perspectives on that. Both of them, I think, we're meant to learn from. Perspective one is that of Ananias, and perspective two is that of Saul. So Ananias is given this role to welcome Saul. In verse 13, he's telling God of all these damning reports he's heard about him. Likely, some of his friends and brothers he knew from Jerusalem were either imprisoned or forced to flee because of this man. And yet, he is to go and welcome Saul. See, I think most of us would be really happy to hear that the leader of ISIS becomes a Christian. 
We delight in it. Great news. But how would you feel if they joined our church? How do you feel if the leader of ISIS now becomes part of your connect group? Having them over on a Sunday lunch? How would you feel about that person becoming your kid's Sunday school leader? See, Ananias had to trust God in this. And he worked it through with God. We read it. And we may not all have visions like Ananias, but we can all talk to God. We can all pray to God. We can all have these helpful chats with him. See, God's response to him carries lovely sort of pastoral overtones. He didn't need to tell Ananias that Saul would suffer, but he does. See, Ananias had suffered for the gospel. So will Saul. This isn't some free pass for Saul to get through things. There's no special treatment going on here. To accept Saul, Ananias must remember that the same God that paid for his sins can pay for souls. We're to welcome people into our church. And that's more than just saying hello, but to rejoice with them. That they've been bought at a price. To invite them into our lives, to do life with them. When you look at your friends in our church, do they reflect the diverse church we are? We've got around 25 different nationalities here at Christchurch. I have to ask myself the question, do all my friends look like me? H&M man 2015. Do they all come from similar backgrounds? Do they all do similar work? Or have I embraced those people in my church family who are just very different from myself? Remember your Adam Jenkins, the person who you thought of at the beginning of this sermon, your boss, neighbor, colleague, loved family member. Imagine welcoming them into your connect group, inviting them into your life, sharing what Jesus has been teaching you, being vulnerable with them. See, Jesus breaks down any and every barrier. Jesus is good enough to save you and he's good enough to save them. I love how the very first words we get recorded um, to Saul as a Christian are these. Brother Saul. Brother. Fellow family member. Someone bought at a price. Someone accepted. Ananias had seen no evidence of Saul's radical transformation. And yet he still calls him brother because he believes what Jesus had told him. The second perspective is that of Saul. Jesus' unstoppable plan involves sending Saul out. And in verse 15 and 16, we read that part of that plan will involve suffering. Our Saviour suffered. It's no surprise then that as we go out for him, we're going to experience suffering too. Not every Christian will suffer for their faith. Certainly there are Christians out there who the Lord has blessed with a life of ease. However, when we look through scripture, when we look through history, we see that a life of suffering is more the norm than the exception. For the Christian, joy, for the Christian, joy is not found in the absence of suffering, but in doing God's will and being found pleasing 
in his sight. Let me just say that again. For the Christian, joy is not found in the absence of suffering, but in doing God's will and being found pleasing in his sight. Saul is going to have more than his fair share of suffering. We read in 2 Corinthians 13 that he's at that point shipwrecked three times, imprisoned frequently, flogged often, five times received the 39 lashes with the whip, three times beaten with rod, and even pelted to near death by stones. Saul is going to suffer for the gospel. We don't look to go and find suffering. But as we go out for the gospel, we may suffer, but we'll also find joy. The call here isn't to go and suffer. But as we see the brilliance of Jesus and his grace and his mercy for me, we will take the gospels out to the ends of the earth. John Bunyan was a famous preacher and wrote the classic book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Progress. His teaching, his preaching was so popular and so powerful and so unacceptable to leaders in the 17th century Church of England that they locked him up. He was jailed in order to silence him. Refusing to be silent, each day he would come out and preach in the courtyard. At first to his fellow prisoners, but as word got out, People from all over Bedford and the local area would come and hear him expound scripture each and every day. He was silenced further. They placed him into the very inside of the jail, forbidden to preach at all. Yet in the silence, he was loudest of all, to more people than he could have ever imagined. Because it was during that time that he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. The great Christian classic that has ministered the gospel to tens of millions of people throughout the earth. For several centuries, it was the most widely read and translated book in the world after the Bible. Bunyan's opponents were able to stop him from preaching for a few years. But they weren't able to stop his ministry. Instead, they provided opportunity for it being extended from deep within a small jail cell in the middle of Bedford to the rest of the earth. Like Bunyan and like Saul, our goal is not to avoid suffering, but to do God's will and be pleasing in his sight, whatever the cost. So we're called to welcome like Ananias and be willing to suffer for the gospel like Saul. And I suspect each of us maybe need to hear one more than the other here this morning. God wants to involve you in his plan. So we shouldn't miss out on doing something of eternal value. Well, we've heard this morning of a God who's transformed Saul in a moment. He's on Ananias' side. He's on our side. Don't miss out on how big Jesus is. Despite how powerful Saul seems, how his presence petrifies the Christians, our Jesus renders him impotent in a moment. Jesus will have his way with Saul and he's going to make him into a vessel of his grace. Saul deserved to be extinguished. He deserved judgment, just like you and just like me. But instead, he receives grace. Let me end with this. Just before COVID, 
I went to visit my parents' church in Leeds. And during the worship, as I was looking around, who did I see? Adam Jenkins. Worshipping our God. The person who I had at the very bottom of my list of people who would ever be saved. He is now my brother. I'd have lost your mortgage, I'm sorry. Bets are off. I was taken back. I was, I was delighted. You see, because nobody is beyond God's reach. Not merely Adam, who was bad to me, but the souls who were downright evil to God and to the fledgling church. See, they are small fry to the God of the Bible. His grace, his mercy is big enough for you, for me, for Saul. There is hope for all of us. But it also means for you Christians, those that are harsh to you in life, God is with you. He's promised it. He will have his way. He is unstoppable. Go out. Be obedient like Ananias. Be obedient like Saul. As we reflect on this passage this week, let us rejoice in the fact that Jesus can save anyone, regardless who is on your mental list. And that if Jesus can save anyone, then he is unstoppable. And that unstoppable plan involves you and I, regardless of who we're up against or what we're up against. So let's join in that plan. Let me pray now for us. Father, thank you that you can save anyone, even me. Thank you that your gospel will not be stopped as it goes out into the world. It cannot be stopped. Thank you that you invite us to be part of your plan. Oh Lord, help us to have a deep joy in being in relationship with you. Of being involved in what you are doing and to make the most of the opportunities that you give us, both to welcome and to share your gospel. Lord, may these words not just go in our ear today and out the other, but may they sink deep to our hearts. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.